Flip to Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8, we're going to look at that psalm this evening, one through verses 1 through 9. Psalm chapter 8, what is man? I'm going to read that and then we'll pray and then we will get to work. Psalm chapter 8, verse 1. These are the words of God. O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who displays your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I see your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have established, what is man that you remember him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the animals of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Our Father and gracious God, you are, you are in fact great, good, gracious, and glorious. And based on these truths, we don't have to, we don't need to be in control. We don't need something more than you. We don't need to try and impress you, nor do we need approval from others. Because of the excellencies and the power of your word, we have been established as the crown of your beautiful creation. We confess that we do not always live in step with your commands, and so we ask for your forgiveness. And we ask that your spirit would sustain us. Help us as we look to your scripture, your word, in Christ's name I pray. Amen. What is man? What is man? It is a question that plagues the existentialists. It frightens the humanists. It stumps the philosophers. Uh, this most basic question intrigues the skeptics and even fascinates the relativists. From the Greeks to the German idealists, the question of man, the question of man and his existence, and of course man's relationship to the world, to reality, has been perplexing, sparking much interest and spilling much ink, especially here in the West. It's been said by one author that history is the graveyard of the idols, uh, which is true, but we can just as well say that history is the graveyard of man's philosophical idols. So what is man? Who is the I? You're a thinker. You have a mind that moves you in some degree, a heart that directs all of those things. But who are you? Who, who is the I? Who is the self? Who is the ego? Uh, which is sometimes referred to in philosophical discussion. What is it that explains our various sensory experiences and all of our rational deductions that we make every single day? Why choose pancakes and not waffles? Why choose the blue shirt and not the red shirt? Why did you decide to do this thing today and not the other thing that you could have done as well? What is this about who we are? In other words, man, no doubt, and I'm including in the word man, all of humanity, has the capacity to think, to, to feel, to distinguish, to ascertain information, uh, to create, to destroy, to, to manipulate, to reconstruct something, to deconstruct something, and so on. But how is that to be explained? Does the Bible give us a Christian philosophy of life 
and of the self that can answer this question, who is man, what is man? Um, writing several centuries before Plato, and Socrates and then Plato and then Aristotle, writing long before those guys, King David actually tells us the answer. Uh, Psalm 8 is the first hymn of praise that we run into in, in the Psalter. Uh, you'll remember here just from our reading real quick that David hearkens back to the creation narrative of Genesis 1 and 2, talking about the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and all those things, and clearly a reference back to Genesis 1 and 2, the creation story. And in it, he explains how God creates God creates the world and then takes up residency in the universe as it is his new temple home. So in our text, the grandeur of God's creative wisdom is compared to the seemingly unimpressive nature of man. All these wonderful things out there. Who, what is man? Who am I? Now, at first glance, it almost seems fatalistic. What is man that the creator of all things should care at all about him? It seems that way, but far from being fatalistic or even karmic, a lot of talk of karma these days, but rather than any of that, David affirms the imago dei, the image of God, and that has been given to man as a result of God's grace. So far from this question of insecurity, this existential crisis that he has, what is man? It's actually an affirmation of the glory of God. It's an affirmation of faith. God has given us his image. We are his image. And to be clear, I want to make sure we understand this. It's not as though man was given the image of God. Man is the image of God. He wasn't given it like it was some gift outside of him. Man, woman, child is the image of God. This hymn here in Psalm 8 is a rehearsal of all of God's glorious works the wonders of his grand creation project, and at the centerpiece is man, a vicegerent, a king and a priest in God's temple home. And we also find in this text that there is strength and weakness. I love this text about infants and nursing babies. They tear down the, the uh, enemy's arrogant posturing. Just like um, Elon Musk has been talking about this just the birth rate problem, which many people have been talking about this, the birth rate issue. And uh, when you have a culture bent on all sorts of promiscuity and delayed marriage and, and I'm going to have my career first and then have children, good luck You know, when you retire at 65 having the children you should have had 50 years ago, 40 years ago. So that's, but that's the culture right now we live in. But here there's value, there's, there's, there's goodness in nursing babies because the children we have today will be tomorrow's warriors and frankly if we just keep doing this what we got going on here we'll win just by sheer numbers <laughs> so welcome to post mill 101 now man's servanthood dominion brings even further glory to creation god created the world glorious he put man in it in his image and yet here we find that, that man's servanthood dominion, his task in the world, actually brings more glory to creation. So there's divine excitement in what appears to be mundane. From start to finish, God is declared to be majestic. God is declared to be majestic. So we have God, theology, right? We have humanity, so we have an anthropology. And then we have creation, almost like an ecology here, all in this text. 
And all of those things are woven together into a theocentric vision of life in God's world. Now, the New, the, the New Testament references this psalm specifically on a few occasions. However, the, the strength of the passage lies in the fact that Jesus Christ is the man who restores men. So I'll explain that as we go, but note that on the front end. Jesus Christ is the man, the man, capital M, that restores other men. He restores all of us. It is his incarnation, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his current rule and reign as the God-man that restores us to our central calling and task in the world. So the the image of God and man is restored in Christ. That's sort of the point. (laughs) The image of... of, uh, of, of God that's in man, that's on man, is restored in Christ. And it's not restored in some philosophical scheme. It's not restored in parading your debauchery down the street. Okay? It's not restored in, in Karl Marx's dialectical materialism. We don't have time for that. It's not restored in communism. It's not restored. It's not even restored in conservative politics, and especially not leftist liberal um, politics. It's not restored in any of those ways. It's only restored in Christ. So let's look at our passage. Remember, real quick, uh, Psalm 1 and 2, that lays the foundation. They're like the twin pillars of the book. While Psalms 3 through 7 explain human suffering in the world, But here we have this hymn of praise. It's the first hymn of praise in the Psalter, and it affirms two main things. First, it affirms that God is majestic. God is majestic. Second, man is glorious. Those two things. And by the way, in that order. God is majestic, and man is glorious. Man is part of the created order, and therefore he is accountable to God, just like the grass is accountable to God. Just like the trees, the wind, the weather, all of it is accountable to God. You as a man, as a woman, as a child, you too are accountable to God. But, or however, man is most distinct from the created order. And therefore he has a special position in it. We are not animals, despite Darwinian naturalistic evolutionary nonsense. Uh, We are very distinct None of the cows we tried to herd the other night after church uh, were setting up shop to debate philosophy in the middle of Germantown Road. Okay, so there's a distinction to be made, clearly. Now look at verses 1 and 9. I'm going to start with the first and the last verse. It says the same thing. O Yahweh, the covenant name of God. O Yahweh, our Lord, Adonai. How majestic is your name in all the earth. O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The poem has what's called three, there are three strophes, the first part uh, of verse 1 and verse 9. They are like bookends, or what's called in poetry, inclusios. They are uh, sort of the front and the back, the beginning and the end, the bookend of this whole thing. So the main refrain is, O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. A couple of observations about that. First, the covenant name of God is used as an anchor. Yahweh is an, an anchor. It's an anchor to secure the poem's content. So whenever th- something's repeated in Scripture, you should always be thinking, okay, this is repeated for a reason, right? Children, if your parents repeat themselves and giving you a directive, there's a reason for it, right? Sort of the same thing. The Bible will do that often in repeating itself for the sake of grabbing your attention. 
So the name of the covenant name of God is used as an anchor. This is not the Egyptian, Phoenician, or Mesopotamian constituents who would always deify uh, and thus worship creation, deify some aspect of creation, which that's idolatry is that anyway, just deifying some sort of creation thing. So the created order is not God, nor is any aspect of the creation a God. This is the God of Israel, the I am from before creation, the one who spoke all things into existence. So that's the first thing to note. Second, the word all. Notice that we're talking about your name in all the earth. The word all shows up throughout the poem in several places. But immediately we're confronted with the majestic, excellent, and awesome name of God being in all the earth. Not in a pantheistic, panentheistic sense, where God is in the walls, in that sort of weird blending of the transcendence and imminence of God and just bringing them together. That's not what we're talking about. God is in the world. God lays claim to the entire earth. All that is above it, all that is in it, all that is below it. Third, the name of God is his character and his nature. His presence, grandeur, and glory fill all the earth. His fingerprints are on it all because he created it all. It all reflects his glory. Fourth, notice that he is our Lord. O Yahweh, our Lord. He is our Lord. We are his covenant people. We are in covenant with him because he initiated the covenant, not because we did. And his name is to be chanted. His name is to be proclaimed and praised. The immaculate transcendence of God is affirmed right from the very beginning. This is a very God-centered poem, despite the main point being the glory of man. The glory of man is only encapsulated within the grace and mercy and majesty of God. Look at the rest of verse 1. Who displays your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. So the splendor of God and his self-revelation, his name, is reflected in the wonders of the heavens. It is reflected in, 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 heaven, in the heavens. The, the psalm places us in the throne room of God so that we can see the majesty in the mirror of the created order. I think it was Chesterton who talked about God just enjoying the, the sun coming up and down every day. And, and just, you know, we joke about watching grass grow, but God enjoys it. God enjoys his creation, and we ought to as well. We should look at the mountains and the sky, and we should always be reminded of the majesty and glory of God. His, his name is all over it. But yet immediately we're thrust down from the heavens right next to the crib. He's talking about the glory of creation, and now we're at the most unique place in all the earth, the, the, the bedside, the crib, the rocker. Consider the weakest among us, the infants and nursing babies. Their cry is a concern of God's. In fact, their cry is more important to God. It is more powerful to God than the screams of the adversaries who we saw in chapter 1 and 2 who just rage and mutter against God. Children are a heritage. The family is of the utmost importance. Their cry is heard by the parent who embodies strength and care, just like how God the Father cares for his children. For those of you who heard Ron say this, I think he said this at the uh, abolitionist conference. <laughs> now I'm not sure, um, but I know I heard him say this recently. 
he mentioned when we did his daughter's baptism in front of Planned Parenthood in Washington, D.C. And uh, I was standing right next to him when this took place, and the child was screaming. He did talk about it, right, at the conference. I thought so. And the child was just screaming, screaming, screaming. And so he said, all right, he just put the microphone there. And it, it was very moving to hear the screams of the child. And that's power. There's power in that. No doubt this verse speaks to that very, very issue. The, the foes of God, they don't have access to the most powerful one. Hence, they are weak. All the, all the strength of the elites, the mighty, the glorious in our culture, they're weak. They're weak compared to nursing babies. Especially those covenant children who are sealed in Christ and are growing and learning in Christ. See, those who would see themselves in, as innately powerful here are actually very weak even compared to the nursing infants. In God's economy, the simple trust of a child is more potent than the words of a politician. Verse 3 through 8. When I see your heavens, the work of your fingers, note the language there, the work of your fingers, we're going to come back to that, the moon and the stars which you have established, what is man that you remember him? David's considering all these things. What is man that you remember him? And the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the angels. And you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him rule over the works of your hands, the fingers, the hands of God. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the animals of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. So far, we've seen the tops of the heavens, we've seen the lowliest of circumstances, and now we get to consider, consider the totality of God's created order. David, he sees the work of God's fingers, the work of God's hands, which is recalling to mind Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, David would have known that those passages probably by heart. He would have known very intimately the creation story. We should all be very familiar with it as well because the whole Bible is the unfolding of that and the rearranging of that to get us to a garden world, a garden city. When David looks and sees the sun and the moon and the stars, he is immediately struck with this profound question. What is man, Enosh in Hebrew, what is man that you remember him? And the son of man, Ben-Adam, that you care for him? David uses the, the Hebrew word Enosh to describe the lowliness of man, the seemingly insignificance of, of humankind in comparison to the rest of creation. What is man? What, we're just, we were created from the dirt, and that's where we're going. So what is man in that sense? Cast aside your pride for just one second, and you'll see that man is very, very small. And yet there's a near paradox here. Man, man is Adam, made from Adama, the earth ground. However, God is mindful. We're not just people made of dirt. God is mindful. He remembers us. He cares for us. The other gods of the other pagan nations, they were generally indifferent towards man, especially the Greek gods. They were indifferent. They were busy doing their thing, and man was just here doing his thing, and they were very indifferent about man. But what about Yahweh? Well, he feels for his special creature. He cares about his special creature. There's value and, and dignity. That's why we are abolitionists, because there's value and dignity and worth 
from the moment of fertilization, you are a human being made in the image of God. But this isn't just anthropology as though one could separate it completely from theology. Rather, this is the biblical worldview. Man cannot be defined apart from God who is mindful of him. So note that in your apologetics, talking to unbelieving friends, family, you always, always, this always happens, is people try to define man apart from God. Don't let them. You cannot define man apart from God. It's impossible. But they will try. That's why they say we evolved from apes. Man can't be defined from God, and not just God in an impersonal sense, but the personal absolute God who is, quote, mindful. He is mindful. He cares for his people. Now, God could be preoccupied with the stars. He could be preoccupied with uh, whatever the sun is made up of. Uh, He could be preoccupied with, with so much, but in fact, he preoccupies himself with mere mortals. In fact, he takes on flesh to redeem them. That's how mindful he is. But the question is rhetorical. Only God knows. What is man that you remember him, the son of man that you care for him? Well, only God knows because it's only God's prerogative. The humble man knows he's not special. Only special in terms of God, but not special in his own, his own, own definition. So we are told about the image of God and man. I'm going to de- develop that a little bit more shortly. But for now, note that in verse 5, David explains that man is lower than the angels. Depending on your translation, the Septuagint, tra- the Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Masoretic text. And they chose to translate this. It's Elohim. It's plural. Elohim can mean God singular, referring to Yahweh as, and his being God. Or it can also mean judges, or it can mean um, angels. That's what the Septuagint translates it. That's what the LSB does here. The ESV, if you have an ESV, I don't know how many there are, but it says heavenly beings. Uh, Heavenly beings, some some choose God's lowercase. But the point is, we're made lower than the heavenly beings or the, the angels. And God has crowned us with glory and majesty. Think about that. You are crowned with with glory and majesty. He's lower than the heavenly courtroom, but he's higher than the animals. We're we're in between there. In fact, man's position is a vicegerent, a co-ruler with God. The image of God in man means that man has been given dominion by God. We've been entrusted with a vocation. Um, Bavink notes this rather brilliantly in my mind. He, He says that Genesis 1 highlights man being the purpose of creation because we have two creation stories and they're told differently but Genesis 1 highlights that man is the purpose of creation that's just that's the crown we're, we're crowned with glory and majesty that's the purpose but Genesis 2 highlights that man is the primary agent of the unfolding of history so that's why the accounts are a little bit different The supremacy of man over the so-called natural world is the covenantal choice of God. He was the one who gave it to the first Adam. So everything has been placed under the stewarding subjection of mankind. The animals, the birds, uh, the domesticated and the undomesticated. The whole created order is designed for man to explore, for man to develop, for man to nurture, and for man to grow. So glory be to God in your home, home gardens, right? That's partly why we exist. But man is supposed to work and rest. He's supposed to rule. He's supposed to serve. 
He's, he's supposed to sanctify all of life, making it suitable for service to God. That's why we believe that our involvement in things like politics matters and business matters. All of life is to be made suitable for service to God. God has deputized us. He has appointed us to rule the world as a subordinate underneath his authority. So to steward the earth, to, to eradicate evil, and ensure that history glorifies God. It's like, kids, that's, you, you'll, you'll grow up and you'll discern what it is God wants you to do with your life and, and get married and have children and all these, you know, maybe start a business or, uh, or work at a business, whatever the issue, whatever the thing you want to do. Uh, you know, your, your parents are helping you navigate that. Uh, but either way, zoom out for a minute. What is your purpose? That's your purpose. Your purpose is here to rule the world as a subordinate underneath God's authority. You are to steward the earth. You are to be a good steward of the things you possess, of steward, steward of, of your friendships, of your relationships, to be good stewards of the brothers and sisters in Christ here in this body. You are to see to it that evil is eradicated in all spheres. That's why we're abolitionists. And we need to ensure that history glorifies God. That's why you exist. Unless we forget, this beautiful image presented here in Psalm 8 is all for the glory and praise of God. We are supposed to feel and see the majesty of God. The Psalms are a great prayer book. If you don't know what to pray, just open it up and read one. It, we are supposed to feel the majesty of God. When we consider the world and our place in it, and that effulgent consideration, we're, we're left speechless sometimes. That should produce joy in the heart. It should produce a song on the lips. That's what it's supposed to do. We praise what we prize, someone once said. We praise what we prize. We extol what we treasure. treasure. And if all of our religious ground motives of the, of the heart that are there in the heart that help us navigate and decide what it is we're going to do, all of that is to come from an adoration of God, a, a humility for God's goodness and His graciousness. And when we do that, we will find ourselves blessed as a result. So Psalm 8 tells us that God is not distant. God is not distant and remote. He is near and he cares about even the most little of things, the cry of an infant. And he is, as Genesis teaches, he's transcendent, he is other, he is not the creation, he is the creator. And yet he is also imminent, he is also present. He cares about you and your day-to-day. -day. He speaks all things into existence. And yet apparently he gets down on his hands and knees and breathes into Adam. That's the God we serve. Jesus, too, is absolutely transcendent, possessing the divine nature. And he is also imminent as well, possessing the human nature. Psalm 8 glories in the glorification of God's creation. Now, I want to deal with something specific here, namely the image of God and man. And I, I've already mentioned that man is the crown, man is the jewel of God's creation. He doesn't just possess the image of God. He is the image of, of God. Um, individually, we are the image of God. And collectively, we are the image of God. Man is God's chosen representative on earth. He has chosen us to be fruitful, to, be, to, to multiply, to work and to keep, uh, to produce and to enjoy, to steward and to treasure, 
to see to it that righteousness and not evil is manifested in all lawful cultural pursuits. That's what we're called to do. So in short, to be the image of God is to be royalty, to have a vocation, and to possess the ethical requirement of faithful stewardship. It's never just doing dishes. It's never just pulling weeds. It's never just being a mom. It's never just going to your job. It's never just mowing and, and enjoying that lawn for five minutes and then realizing that you're going to have to do it a week later. And <laughs> it's never just those things. You have been called to this task. You, all of us have a green thumb. We're supposed to, anyway, to some degree or another. Th this is our creation. God gave it to us. We are to do something with it. We are to be faithful stewards. The central component to our existence of God's creation, to our, excuse me, our experience of God's creation, lies in the threefold scriptural motive, ground motive, the, the heart, the very foundation. Namely, three things. One, an integral, integral creation uh, where there is coherency, there is consistency. We all sort of just know how things are going to go. When the clouds look a certain way, we know rain's coming. There's predictability. So there's an integral creation. There's consistency, there's coherency. That's our experience. Two, we also experience the devastation of sin in the fall where man's image became distorted and maligned. So we have the integral creation, we have the devastation of the fall, and third, we have the radical transformation of, and redemption of Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, where the Son of God took on human flesh to, to rescue man from sin and depravity in order to restore the image of God in him. So note those three things, creation, fall, redemption. That's history. That's our experience every single day. Creation, fall, Redemption, or sometimes it's called restoration. That, those three things lie at the center of God's self-revelation. Creation, fall, redemption. Scripture tells us who God is. He, the Bible tells us who it is that God is, how the world is integrally uh, related to man, and how Jesus Christ restores that integration. When man fell into sin, his falling, of course, presupposed his standing. When we call it the fall we mean that there was a, such a thing as the standing before that. That presupposes that. That is, he was upright, man was upright, man was just. Man was, at one point in history, able to stand before God in his holiness. That, Adam and Eve would have walked in the cool of the day with God in the garden. He, he was able to stand up on his feet and salute Jesus Christ, the captain of his soul. He was able to do that. But sin disrupted the harmony that man experienced in the garden, leaving him groveling and begging for breadcrumbs. Subsequently, man's entire relational and integral makeup was fractured. Note this when sin entered into the world. Man's relationship with God, his covenant Lord, became estranged. Man's relationship with himself became disordered. So we experience things like insecurity, um, jealousy or, or uh, lust or all these, all these things. Man's relationship with himself became disordered. Man's relationship with his wife became stressed and panicky. And finally, man's relationship with the creation became a temptation for idol worship. Note those things. When Adam and Eve fell, our relationship with, with God, 
We were estranged. Our relationship with ourself, meaning the, the ego, the self, we, we don't view ourselves properly anymore because of sin. It became, our thoughts are disordered. Our hearts are divided. Man's relationship with his wife became stressed and panicky, meaning that there was division, which was supposed to be a unification in the covenant. There became a division. That's why there's blame shifting involved early on when Adam and Eve sinned. And then, of course, man's relationship with the creation became a temptation for idol worship, deifying the created order. Those, that's what sin did to human history right there. Now, regarding the image of God placed on man, Reformed theology helps us understand the relationship between sin and this image. Calvin, Bavink, and others have distinguished between two things. When we think about the image of God, uh, the image of God on man and in man, there's a broader sense and a narrower sense. And I want to explain that, but I think Burkhauer explains it well. He said this, The broader sense of the image is used to stress the idea that man, despite his fall and sin and corruption, was not bestialized or demonized, but remained man. So that's the broader sense, right? When we sinned, we didn't become animals or demons. We were still man. The narrow sense of the image is used to stress the idea that man lost his communion with God. His religious knowledge, his righteousness, his holiness, his conformity to God's will. This latter uh, was a ra uh, radical change in man's nature, which originally was wholly turned towards God, and now after the fall is com turned completely away. Man was good, righteous, and holy, capable in all things to, to will agreeably to the will of God. That's the Belgic Confession. Man was created by God good and after his image, that is, in true righteousness and holiness. That's the Heidelberg Catechism. Man was originally formed in the image of God. His understanding was adorned with a true and saving knowledge of, of his creator and of spiritual things. His heart and will were upright, all his affections pure, and the whole man was holy. That's the canons of Dort. But all, Birkhauer says, but all this wealth vanished with the fall. So, when man sinned, God was still mindful of him. The image wasn't completely effaced and lost, for man would then cease to be a man. But instead, though, the image was broken. The image of God is broken and fractured and polluted and corrupted. When you deal with unbelievers and evangelizing them and talking to them, that's important to remember. They are made in the image of God, but it's fractured, it's broken, it's corrupted, it's polluted. Five minutes after Adam and Eve sinned, they didn't stop being living, breathing human beings. They didn't go from being humans to becoming demons or animals. That's what Burkhauer's point is. Rather, they went from covenant keepers to covenant breakers. And while all this wealth, in his words, certainly vanished, the wealth was the privileges of grace man has and had inside the covenant. Undoubtedly, man went from being in-law to being an outlaw. The blessings of the covenant were inverted and turned into the curses of the covenant. Adam and Eve assumed that neutrality was possible and that there was, a, there was knowledge to be had outside of God, which ended up being a negation of the law word of God. So without a doubt, it's imperative that we understand not just the creation and fall of man, but friends, we also need to know the redemption and restoration of man. And what it is that Christ brings to the table. Above all, we must know and we must understand the power that is the Word of God. 
It is a power. The Bible isn't just a book about which we are to think rational thoughts. Temptation of Reformed theology. When we speak of the Word of God, we are using a phrase to describe the variables we see in Scripture. The creation word, when God spoke all things to, into existence. The incarnate word, Jesus Christ became a man, took on flesh. The inscripturated word, the Holy Spirit codified history through, through the, the, uh, the people of God who wrote and experienced God's moving about as, as he chose Abraham and all of redemptive history. Uh, this flourishing of humanity as, as an authoritative word that explains all of reality. The, the word of God, which sums up all of those aspects, is the power of God by which we attain new life. His word unites us to truth. When we're united to truth, we see the created order as it really and truly is. I love what H. Evan Runner said. He said, We see the universe at its heart to be the great covenantal commerce between God and his image and vicegerent, man, who in the whole of that sure order of law that is the creation, is to walk in holiness before his God, making all his cultural work in the creation, established by the cultural mandate, to correspond with the demands of the divine law ordinances and thus to be his religious service to God. <laughs> Very simply, you are to, in all of your work, reflect the glory of God and that honors him. The point here is that the fracture of sin and the disintegration of, of covenant rebellion is healed in Christ and the power of the word of God that heals the sin and integrates us back into the covenant. It is yours in Christ. Once inside the covenant, thanks be to Christ and his substitutionary work, we see the integral nature of ourselves. We see the created order clearly. We see the law structures of reality. And we see our relationship to God healed. So to have the image of God restored in us is to be at harmony and peace with God. To, be, to no longer be disordered in our minds and our affections. But to have an alignment with, with ourselves, with each other, with the creation. We are put back in the representative place as rulers and kings with God over a world in need of development and sanctification. That's why we can't just leave the town square to the humanists. You, you don't just absolve yourself of that like Pilate tried to do, washing his hands. We don't just let it go. We engage in it and we do what we need to do to sanctify it. The cultural mandate is given back to us in Christ. It's republished in the Great Commission mandate. And we have a holy vocation to fulfill. So this, by the way, make sure you get this. This image restoration that Christ gives to you is not a past job on man's reason. That, that natural part of us that even Thomas Aquinas thought was untouched by sin. Rather, the, the image restoration is the integral quality of life. As a man and woman, as the body of Christ... As, as we steward the earth via servanthood dominion over every aspect of life. You have been restored so that you can reflect God in who you are, your relationship to Him, your work, your labor, all of it. You see, human dominion is a gift. The ability to express ourselves as created and creating creatures is not meant to be exhaustive. Uh, we don't develop the sciences and technology and art and all of those things however, however we wish, however we see fit. 
That's why modern art is so disgusting, because it's art to the glory of man. Rather, all of life, our humanity, and all of our cultural development is meant to begin and end with the praise of God, just like this psalm tells us. To begin with the praise of God, to end with the praise of God. Before you start your shift at work, to the praise of God, when you clock out, to the praise of God. Worship is the goal of human dominion. So church, know this, Christ has restored you. Christ has restored you. He has brought you to himself. He has situated you within his creation. So therefore, glorify God with your bodies. Glorify God with your bodies, with your families. Glorify God with your families, with your businesses, with your hobbies. All of those things are to glorify God. His name is majestic because his character is unassailable. He deserves the glory, so give it. He deserves our worship. And thanks be to Christ, we can now give it properly with everything we put our hands to. We can give praise back to God now. So do it. Glory be to God. The claim of the Christian faith is that Christ has total dominion over every single aspect of the created order. Every single aspect. He has come to reverse the curse, to restore his elect, and perpetuate history toward the great end of his glory and worship. What does it mean for God's name to be majestic in the earth? Creation, order, law structures, the the sciences. You think of beauty. I mentioned art already. Commerce. All of it. All of God's majesty is to be honored and revered in those things. All things, David says, are placed under the feet of man, but they're first and foremost placed under the feet of Christ, the true man. And he shall reign until his enemies are defeated. So thanks be to the gospel of the kingdom that has achieved such glory. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Father, we honor and glorify you now. We are grateful for the words that David has penned for us under the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. We do wonder sometimes, like David, what is man that you remember him? Who am I that you remember me? Who who are we that you care for us? And yet, we don't say that as people without hope or without direction. You have clearly given us your son in order to establish us as your sons and daughters. And we're grateful for that. We're, we're grateful that we, can, that we can see the created order the way we're supposed to, that we can steward the, the earth the way we're supposed to, as you've called us to. Oh, Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It is true. Father, we ask that you would be jealous for your name. Would you work in us and among us Establish us as we seek to labor each and every day, whether we're changing diapers or scrubbing the dishes, making a meal, mowing the the lawn, pulling weeds, going to work, speaking with our coworkers, standing on the street corner, declaring the glory of God and asking and demanding that man repent of his autonomy, whatever we're doing, All of life is to be under your authority. So help us as we seek to to serve, to labor for that to be a reality. So as we come to the table of communion, as we sing, uh, Lord, would you be honored and glorified.
nurture us, establish us, make sure that you are the ruler of our hearts. In Christ's name we pray, amen.